scripture reading will be John 3, 1 through 3, and 16 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if you were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Hey, you can be seated. Good morning again. It is a frightening thing to preach about stillness on the day of daylight savings time. Amen? Amen. Okay, so let's have a little more celebration before I preach about stillness. We want to welcome the Weaver family. This is Lance and Amanda and Ella and Jackson Weavers. Where are you guys at this morning? Right back here. All right, back here. Let's all give them a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You can be seated. Yes, it is a frightening thing to preach about stillness on the day the government has stolen a night from our sleep. And we don't even get a rebate on this one until the fall, right? So uh, we're going to talk today about the fear of being still. I thought this wouldn't be the best day to try to teach you how to be still because if you were too successful at it, we would all just have a good nap this morning. Today we're going to talk about why we're so afraid of it. Next week we're going to talk about how to begin doing it. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I, I feel like I need to get you warmed up and get an amen before I even start preaching. So could we just all agree that it would be better if we moved daylight savings time from here on out to be on Fridays at 4 p.m.? <laughs> amen? Amen. Okay. Let's, let's run a campaign based on that. Okay. Let's talk about our fear of being still. Today, I'm going to take us to a passage of Scripture that actually doesn't talk about stillness for us to talk about stillness. We're going to read again about Nick, Nicodemus, who comes at nighttime to visit Jesus. And what we're going to see is that some of the things that we try to do in the spiritual practice of stillness comes out in life experience in, in our stories the way that it does in Nicodemus's life experience because there's a big chasm between the theory of doing spiritual practices like let's just sit still and have a good time with God for five minutes and what we actually experience and we need a narrative we need a person to step into their story to see what's going on that's what we're going to do uh, with with Nicodemus so let's start here this morning and just talk about for a minute why we would be still at all why is this important to talk about and to preach about? Uh, I want to start with the completely blatantly secular point of view and move our way into the spiritual. These are benefits that research shows us 
come to people who sit still. And this can come to people who sit still for long periods of time, but five minutes a day of sitting still and quiet and collecting your thoughts can bring these kind of benefits. It reduces the parasympathetic responses. Wow, whatever that means. It means something like this. It lowers stress in our bodies. It's been proven to be true. People that sit still for a few minutes uh, have find that they prioritize better. Is there anyone here today that could use a little bit more prioritization in life? Anybody here who's guilty of being a procrastinator? Right? You don't have to self-diagnose, you know, diagnose, but I am. I'm confessing it. This can anchor you in the present. It anchors you in the present, which means the battle of sitting still is always a battle of dismissing the past and the future for five minutes or so. It anchors us in the present, which means we gain presence. We have a better perspective of sitting with somebody, looking them eye to eye, and being fully engaged. It makes us more intentional. And these are words that we are all about in this generation. We know we're lacking them. We talk about them. We use the word intentional about a lot of things. But research shows us that sitting still on our own for five minutes or so helps us to do this better. So does anybody feel this need in your life? Do you ever have the spouse ask you, did you hear anything that I just said? If so, a little bit of sitting still might help us with our presence. We talk about being intentional in our homes, intentional in our families, intentional in our quiet time with God in all these ways, but we want to get better at it and we just try harder. Uh, maybe this is a way to gain some better presence. Uh, it, it helps us improve our listening, which benefits relationships. It improves our sleep, which we all need, especially today. It improves our health. People who sit for a few minutes have lower blood pressure. They have stronger immune systems overall. It increases serotonin in the body, which is the, one of the happy things. It makes you feel good and just feel like you can take on life a little bit easier. Uh, it increases creativity. Specifically, it helps the left brain to come to a place of calm. And we fill our left brain with activity so much throughout the day that our right brain almost never gets a chance to kick in and contribute anything. The right brain is like that person sitting in the room going, oh, oh, I got an idea right over here. Never mind. Left brain just keeps on talking. When we slow down, the right brain gets a chance to say, I have something to contribute. So it increases our creativity. Uh, it aids us in handling adversity, and I think all of us know we could use that. Either at work or at home, we get ourselves in problems because we don't know how to handle conflict. And then it's commanded by God, so we want to move into this too. It's not just a secular pursuit. We're not talking about stillness just because this is like a self-help topic. This is actually deeply spiritual and important to God who commands it. He does this in a lot of ways, primarily in Sabbath, which isn't rooted in the law of Moses, Sabbath shows up in the law of Moses because it's rooted in the seventh day of creation. God, from the beginning of the world, mandated that people should rest some. And we could talk a lot about all the scriptures about it and how you're not legally bound to a, pract a legal practice of Sabbath, but more the principles that God has put in creation. But today I'm not going to go into all of that. You, just, you can see it all over scripture. Jesus does it. His disciples do it. Uh, it's an important part of our life. But look at these other scriptures for a couple of little uh, sniper shots of evidence pulled from the Bible here. Just pull on a few threads. Psalm 46.10 that John preached from last week. 
that famously says, be still and know that I am God. There's a meme going around on the internet right now that says the Hebrew word in that verse for be still means to be open-handed. And so what we ought to do is let go and let God. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's not altogether wrong. This Hebrew word in this context does mean that the people have their hands open, but it means that they have their hands open because they have been struck into slackness by the command of God. God has spoken and has frozen them. Because they're opposing God and they're warring against him and his purposes and God commands, be slack or be still. In other words, God commands people into limp noodles. If they won't be still on their own, God is going to say, stop for a minute, stop warring with each other so I can talk to you so that you can recognize that I am God. So this is the moment when God shows up and says, you need to be still so much, I'm going to, for a moment here, I'm going to make you slack. Open your hands. Uh, Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord. And then it goes on to say, And wait for him. Which means in the language of those old houses that had servants who were like uh, ladies in waiting or the valets, that you and I have a relationship towards Jesus where we are waiting for the moment that he calls us into service each and every day. It is like we are, are waiting in every moment to see if he may have something he calls us to. Uh, Exodus 14, 14 is when the people of Israel are facing a military superpower that's about to crush them. And all of the imminent frame of thinking, all the present you know, realities of warfare would say, we better fight back or surrender or we're going to die. And God says, be still. I will fight for you. You need only to be still. He calls them into something that is uh, so transcendent, it's almost hard to believe he would offer that to them. Uh, Habakkuk 2.20 famously says, the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him. We, we sing that sometimes. We sang that in first service today. And so all of these things Jesus practiced, and we must too. We just have to have this in our life. We cannot ignore the counsel of scripture on coming to stillness in the presence of God. And I want to make sure that this is clear from the outset. We're not talking about seeking emptiness. The reason I say this is because uh, a lot of people have been exposed a little bit to the Eastern forms of meditation that say the purpose of meditation, the purpose of stilling yourself, the purpose of anything that looks like prayer is to find nirvana or emptiness or the place where there is nothing, there is no existence, and so to center yourself around that. And in fact, what we're doing is quite different. It's not nearly that nihilistic or that hopeless. Uh, what we are looking for is not a nothing. We are looking for a center of reality where God speaks the word, you are loved, that you are dearly loved children. This is the true core of all creation is that God so loved that he made. And when we seek stillness with God, we're trying to come into his face and his presence and meditate on what it means that God spoke this word of love and this creation into being and that that is the reality, the real center that we're looking for. So this can be seen in Psalm 1 and I just want to share this before we move on into the fears. We're going to talk about fears today, uh, fears of being still. And before we get there, I want to show you how Psalm 1 helps us see that we're not, we're not looking for emptiness or impersonality. 
We're not trying to become less uh, a person, but more a person in the face of God who loves us. Listen to this little bit of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. For Psalm 1, the blessing is for the person who is seeking the face of God, meditating on God's law day and night. And the promise is that, it comes in the next verse, he'll be like a tree firmly rooted by streams of water. And we ought to pay attention to Psalm 1, particularly because we have Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible in which there is no Psalm 1. Before there was a Psalm 1, Psalm 1 was Psalm 2. Okay? Why is it important that Psalm 2 used to be Psalm 1 and now Psalm 1 is Psalm 1? Let me tell you why it's important right here. Because some point along the way, when the people of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were penning the Psalms, they realized that we needed an invitation into what the entire book of Psalms is trying to do. And they wrote a poem that later became Psalm 1, and this is that poem that says, as you step into the world of prayer and the Psalms, it is like meditating day and night on God's presence the way a tree is planted by water. This is why it's important that there is now a Psalm 1 when there didn't used to be is because somebody knew we needed this so badly. This picture of a tree that's rooted and still. And here is what a tree planted by water is good at that people are not good at. Is the tree is by the water and its life source is flowing downstream past the tree all the time. And what a tree does is it watches, you know, watches the water go by and it stays Put. It doesn't chase its life-giving resource down the stream the way a human does. When we chase and gather and, and, and go into excess trying to keep, manage, and hold everything that God is sending past us in life with this frenetic activity as if we must save ourselves. People run downstream trying to scoop every bit of water and save it lest any of it be lost because we have this deep-rooted fear that someday there won't be enough. And trees, they stay put. And they trust that what God is providing in the stream will never run out. That God will always be sending the life-giving source. And we're people that say that we believe in eternity and in heaven, and yet we run around seeking limited resources and trying to hold on to them with all of our might because we're afraid of what would happen if we ran out. Stillness can help us to cut through that rat race a little bit and to remember that even if the things I think I need are taken from me, God is limitless in his resources. And he has an eternity, which means literally limitless resources in store for us. We will never run out to the point where we are lost or where we are forgotten. So let's talk about a few more of the fears this morning. I want to talk about um, three fears that are lesser fears and do them real fast, and we're going to move to the two big ones. Okay, so we've got... We've got two big ones that we're moving to, but let's just name a few small fears. We say uh, it's good for you to sit still. The Bible says to do it. We ought to do it, and then we're afraid, and here's reason number one. We're afraid we'll get bored. Anybody got this one? Hands up high and proud if you get afraid you get bored. 
How long till you get bored? A minute? Five? Uh, advertisers believe we get bored in 15 seconds. They're right. So we get bored really, really easy, and we can be afraid of this. So let me, let me just answer this one real quickly for you. If you sit still and you're afraid you're going to get bored, you will. That's just part of the deal. It comes along with the territory. So we'll have to deal with it and grow. Here's another one. I'm afraid I won't be good at it. Anybody afraid they won't be good at it? The ancient monks, the first ones that kind of went out into the desert and into monasteries to escape the hectic and crazy rat race world that they called 200 A.D., when people later worked their way out into the desert to talk to these desert fathers and ask them how they had become masters of stillness and silence, their response was almost always, unequivocally, we haven't. We're beginners. Every morning we start over again. It is hard for us. We're terrible at it. We get bored. I mean, we're literally sitting out here looking at nothing but desert all the time. You know, like nobody gets real good at that. So will we ever get good at it? No, but we'll start over again every day. And here's the third one. We're afraid of being alone. When I was a kid, I had two big fears. One of them was the fear of being alone, and the, and the other one is the one I'm going to preach about from Nicodemus next. So I'll get there when I get there. But one of my big fears was being alone. And, and the specific way I was afraid of being alone was I was afraid of being buried alive. I don't know how this happened to me, but somebody told me a story about being buried alive, and I thought this actually happened to people a lot. And I was really afraid that it was going to happen to me. And I think it was a goosebump story, and then they read me like some Edgar Allan Poe you know I don't think I can blame this on my parents but somebody was not taking good care of me at that point right and like let me read these stories and I grew this terrible fear of being alone and being imprisoned and being trapped somewhere where you couldn't get out and all of that so I've learned a way of dealing with this and I want to share it with you this morning and it's just simply this if you're afraid of being lonely the next time you feel lonely Put on a horror movie, and after a little while, you won't feel alone anymore. It works every time. And so we're all going to be afraid of a little bit of loneliness, of a little bit of boredom, of a little bit of being bad at it. We just have to deal with these things. They're, they're problems, but they're not the real sinister problems, okay? Here are the two big ones, the insidious problems that we're afraid of. And let's start with Nicodemus. The first one, if you're writing this down, and you all know the words, it's the fear of missing out. Okay, so you all know the abbreviation FOMO, but I think it runs deeper and it's more pervasive than we've ever confessed or admitted. So write down, if you're writing on your bulletin, the fear of missing out, uh, and look at how this happens for Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a man who's a member of the Jewish ruling council, which means he's got a lot of power and prestige. He has a lot going for him. We don't know why he comes uh, at nighttime, although I'll give you my take on it in a minute. But one of the reasons he comes to Jesus at night might be he's so busy. He's living a, an active day. He's got political things to deal with. He has people to appease. He has money to make. He's got deals to, to bargain with and all this kind of stuff. So he's very busy, but he's also interested in this new teaching, this rabbi that he's heard who's doing miraculous signs. And Nicodemus is afraid of missing the opportunity 
of what this could be because he's a man of power and he's a man of influence and he knows that when you see a good thing like a miracle worker like this, you don't just let that flow down the stream past you. You chase it down and you try to get a hold of it and capture it and figure out how you force your way into it. This is what a man of power knows how to do. So Nicodemus is coming to Jesus. He's probably a little hopeful. He's probably a little faithful. He's probably a pretty good godly man. In a lot of ways, I think he's a great example, but he's afraid of missing this and he should be because to miss Jesus would be to missed the one thing that he really needed at the center of his life and he's got all these other things going on when he comes to Jesus Jesus perplexes him with this statement instead of just giving him the answer that he wants Jesus says I tru truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again which is to say undoing all the power prestige success and achievement that you as a leader in the government have achieved for yourself you have built a life you want to know what salvation is it's to unbuild the life and get back in the womb that means to be really really still and un untie a lot of things you've tied and I didn't include all the verses in today's reading because we just don't have time to read them all and for me to get through the sermon but they have this fantastic conversation where Nicodemus goes, I don't know how you would do that. And Jesus goes, huh, that's funny. You're the teacher of Israel and you can't imagine how to have a spiritual life. And he says, let me give you a tip. It's like listening to the wind or feeling the wind. You've got to follow the spirit of God. It's everywhere. It's moving when it wants. It's moving where it wants. And you have to pay attention. So even though Jesus never says the words, be still to Nicodemus, he is teaching him, you've got to undo everything you think you know, everything you think that leads to achievement in life. You're going back into the womb, buddy, and we're starting over. You've got to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. Can I get an Amen. Okay, now we're talking. Here's what the fear of missing out is. It's when we restlessly pursue everything in our preferred category. It's when we restlessly pursue everything in our preferred category. All of us give ourselves a pass because we say, well, I'm not a workaholic. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a travelaholic. I'm not a popularity contest person. I don't get involved in drama. We give ourselves a pass on the categories we're not interested in. The thing that we have the fear of missing out is the category that we're interested in. So for me, I am a little bit of a travel addict. I'm an outdoors addict. I'm a be alone in the wilderness for a little while kind of addict. And here's how it works for me. God made creation for us to wander through and for us to explore, and it's a good thing from the heart of God. But I want too much of it. So when I'm in a fight with somebody, disappointed about something going on in the church, frustrated or overworked, I will find myself coming out of this daze where I blacked out, and I'm looking at Google Flights, almost about to buy airplane tickets to someplace around the world. It's not quite that dramatic, but I really do. I look for travel experiences to avoid conflict. This is really sick about me, okay? It's not a good thing. I'm making a big confession to you here right now, so I hope you're prepared to do the same work and look inside of yourselves, is that we all run from the things God would like us to experience in stillness to our preferred category of excess. For some of us, it's travel. For some of us, it's perfection in our work. For some of us, it really is drugs, alcohol, or substances of some kind, sex. For some of us, it is we need to have enough people to serve that we know will always be needed. And for some of us, uh, it, it's, you know, it's anything else that you can imagine that's a good God-given gift that we take too much of. It's material possessions, it's, it's self-care time. You, everybody needs self-care time. 
but some of us are hoarders of it. And so it's like we've all got a category where we're afraid there won't be enough, that we are going to miss out. And when God calls us to sit still and face our fear that other people are throwing parties and we weren't invited, when we sit still for five minutes and we don't buy the travel, when we don't uh, turn to our drug of choice, instead we just sit in the presence of God like a tree and we face him, what happens is God says, you are going to miss some of the water going down the stream and you've got to learn to be okay with it. Because until you can learn to be okay with missing some of the experience of life, you will ruin every experience you do collect by wishing for more. And so you're never satisfied by what you have because you always think you need more. So the solution to this restless pursuit, the solution to the fear of missing out is not to be more successful in our chosen category. In fact, the more successful we get in our sinful category, the more we bury ourselves in the lie that I can have enough of this to fulfill me. So if we're really good at working our way up the corporate ladder, and that's my preferred sin category, and I'm burying in it, then what's happening is I am continually lying to myself and making myself there's, think there's more worlds to conquer. Until we end up like Alexander the Great at some point at the top rung or we've traveled all the places you can travel, we've done all of the things and we feel empty. The solution to this restlessness is not more success, but it's stillness, silence, solitude, simplicity, and surrender. You want to write those down? They all start with S, which means God planned for them to be in a sermon. <laughs> stillness. Silence, solitude, simplicity, and surrender. This is how we become the tree. This is how we, we beat the fear of missing out. Uh, okay, I'm going to go ahead and take a minute to say this because I think it's so important. For you to be able to recognize whether this is happening to yourself, you have to look for your place of hurry sickness. Write down the words hurry sickness. Anybody here have hurry sickness? Here's a few ways that it happens. We overschedule ourselves, so we've been meaning to have coffee with this friend for a long time. We really do value them. We really do care about what's going on in their life. We're good, decent, like God-loving people, and we want to spend time with our friend, but because we're overscheduled and harried and hurried, we're running a little bit late, and we have messages to answer on the phone, and we're in traffic on Walton Boulevard. Anybody ever been in traffic on Walton Boulevard trying to get to the coffee shop in the morning? When, when work traffic is going to Walmart, okay, we all do this thing. We sit there at the red light and we begin to evaluate the strengths of everyone else's vehicles. We're like, that one looks slow. It's a big truck. I know that they come, they come slowly to full speed. I'm going to maneuver into this lane now so I can get around those people by the next light so that I can get past them all. And then we see this person who over here is on their phone and we're like, you are not my people. I'm getting into the other lane. I'm getting around you. We see this guy who's almost on the bumper of everybody and we're like, that's my man right there. I'm getting in your draft. I'm going, we're weaving together. You weave, I weave. We're doing this thing down Walton Boulevard. When we notice it about ourselves, we have hurry sickness. We don't even realize where is it that we're even trying to get this fast. And we do it when we're standing in the checkout line. Again, I'll keep this real short, but we do this, don't we? We're at Neighborhood Market, 
and we see all the lines and we're counting the heads of people in the line and then we find the two shortest lines and we're looking to count how much is in each basket to gauge and try to figure out how we're going to move through the fastest. Do you know what the solution to hurry sickness is? Get in the slow lane and drive all the way to where you're going there and every time somebody passes you, just bless them with a prayer. When you're in the grocery store, pick the long line this week. One time, pick the long line and then let somebody skip line passed in front of you like we have to work against this because otherwise it will consume us we have such a fear of missing out now there's another big one and this is the really really dark one and as usual I've left myself about four minutes so let's just deal with it this is a dark insidious fear and this is the fear of being found out write it down if you want you know FOMO is fear of missing out this one is FOBFO fear of being found out isn't that great? You heard it first here. It won't become a hit, but you heard it first here. Fobfo. The fear of being found out. And this is how it works. When Nicodemus comes, he came to Jesus at night. I think this is the reason. He has so much at stake. He is a powerful and important person. If his friends saw that he was even thinking about facing this question in his life, changing the way he does things to accept this new teaching, he stands to lose his position of authority, which comes with his income. That means getting kicked out of his local synagogue as some kind of uh, God denier, and it would mean for him losing all his friends and his family. His wife wouldn't want to be with him. His children wouldn't want to talk to him. Everything is at stake for Nicodemus on not losing his position of authority. So he comes to Jesus at night, and the irony is that in just a few verses, Jesus is going to talk about this directly directly to Nicodemus's heart because he knows for Nicodemus just like for us the fear of being discovered is one of our greatest fears and it keeps us from coming into the presence of Jesus remember this is a metaphor today he's coming to Jesus to find out if he's the teacher we're going to Jesus in silence and in prayer to see what Jesus has to say about how we're living our life but both of us us and Nick at night the reason we come at night is because we hope that we will be hidden in the cover of darkness and that we will not be exposed and so we sit in fear wondering what would people say if they knew my worst sin what would people think if they thought if they knew what I think, my lustful thoughts, my selfish thoughts, if they knew what I really thought of the joke he uses in his sermons, if they really knew what I thought about how he manages this company, what would people think if they knew I was still holding on to this grudge? And the solution to this kind of hiding of our brokenness and in our brokenness by filling our lives with fast, paced, chasing of all, all of the dreams of life, the solution for this is not to burrow or hide anymore, but to be exposed. It's to be a confessing person. And this begins when we get still in the presence of God because when we get still, all kinds of things come to the surface of our mind unbidden. This is why we're so afraid of sitting still. I get still and I think, all right, I'm gonna be spiritual now. I'm gonna think about Jesus. Here we go. Five minutes on the watch. Jesus. You're good. You're a whole lot better than Ronnie from work. Man, Ronnie really, get, oh, Jesus, this is about you. Jesus, you are so compassionate. You know one thing I've never been able to have compassion for, and we just drift, and we spin, and we recycle our garbage 
we think about the lists we've yet to accomplish and the, we begin to condemn ourselves and we begin to be afraid that other people and even God would be condemning of us. And so to a man who comes to Jesus in the cover of darkness because he is afraid to be seen, Jesus says this. This is the truth about how God comes to you. God is not sitting in heaven waiting for an excuse to burn you up because he's caught you in the exposure of some sin that you've done. The first and foremost word of the gospel is for God so loved. And here I am sitting in my stillness with my mind that is running like a dryer, turning the clothes over and over in my brain. I'm circling through the chaos of my thoughts and God is trying to speak a word in the stillness that says you are loved this is the center of everything God so loved the world that he gave his son and so Jesus preaches the gospel to Nicodemus that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life God did not send his son Jesus into the world to condemn the world but to save it through him God doesn't need a reason to condemn us every time we think for a few minutes we condemn ourselves God doesn't need to tell us we're broken. We spend all of our life patching it together in denial of the fact that we already know it. What God needs to do is give us the Son who says, no more condemnation, instead salvation, that whoever believes in him is not condemned. And then we read the next line and we go, yeah, 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 but there's that line. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, and we go, my faith is weak. I don't believe enough. I'm not faithful enough. I don't behave well enough. We go, but the purpose of this verse from Jesus to Nicodemus in this very personal encounter is not for Jesus to say, and here is the criteria on which God can finally condemn you. It's to say this. They've already not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That, not God standing in judgment, is our core problem that there's one medicine one hope at the center of reality the word of love spoken that we need to heal our brokenness and when we don't believe in God's one and only son everything else we look for fails to cure our disease it's like going to the hospital and refusing to see the doctor it's like having the life-nourishing food set in front of you after 40 days of fasting and refusing to eat it. We don't stand condemned because God's looking for an excuse to condemn us, but because we refuse to receive the healing love power of Jesus. And this is the verdict that Jesus shares with his friend Nicodemus. Comes to him at night. He says, this is the verdict. When you hear the word verdict, you think of judgment. You think, this is the verdict. You know, you're sinful and you're condemned. He says, no, this is the verdict. Light came into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And here's Nick who came at night, and he hears Jesus say they came in the darkness, and he goes, hmm, that's not very veiled, Jesus. I know who you're talking about. And Jesus gently says to him, Everyone who does evil hates the light. They don't want to be seen. Why did you come at night, Nicodemus? Why are you running from sitting still with me? Why are you running from hearing what I have to say to you? 
It's not because I need to tell you you're condemned. It's because you already know it and you're running from me. They won't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. It's the gospel that Nick at Night needs. It's the one that we need because we love to stay in the dark. And we know that this verse, you've probably grown up reading these verses, you know that this verse has to do with the big salvation. If we live in our life of sin, we keep holding on to all of our rejection of God and our sin. God can't save us because we are holding on to all the things that are counter to him. We know that this is important for the big salvation. What we forget is that this is also the way God wants to save us in all the little salvations. All those broken relationships and sleepless nights and all those ulcers in our stomach and all of the high blood pressure, all of the little salvations that God wants to release for us come from this, from sitting still and having God tell me the reason your blood pressure is high is because you have not forgiven. Let's deal with that one, Bundy. The reason you have an ulcer is because you haven't accepted my limitless resources. You think you have to hoard them on your own. Let's deal with that, Bundy. And so, Jesus gives us salvation. He says in this great verse, this verse is a wonderful verse of salvation. The last one here. He says, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. I want you to notice the tense of the verb. I want, in fact, I want you to all read it with me. Will you read it out loud with me so that you've at least read it, heard it, seen it once? Let's read it. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Has been done in the sight of God tells us this. God already knows. We haven't been hiding it from him. We've been hiding it from ourselves. He's known for a long time long time what's going on in the chaos of our hearts this means that the cross of jesus is something that we can never look at the same way again because jesus goes to the cross already having seen what we've done fully revealed in the sight of god jesus lives from the reality of the judgment day backwards where he already knows what is in our book the woman at the well in the very next chapter says the most remarkable thing. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What kind of welcome message is that? Come meet a guy who gives away all your secrets. Only a person who knows they're fully loved from the word of love spoken at the center of creation can say, come see the person who reveals everything about you. It's the most freeing experience I've ever known. I'm fully held and fully loved by him. This means that at the cross, Jesus did not create a general insurance policy against sin. It's not a blanket thing that Jesus did so that if someday you might have trouble and do something wrong, there's a backup plan. At the cross, what Jesus did is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And we all know it because there was an acapella song that many of us grew up listening to. It goes like this. If you know it, you kind of hum with me or whatever. God made him who had no sin that we might become his righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, what God did was he made the Son of God sin for you so that he could give you his righteousness and make an exchange. The cross is this transaction where Jesus goes, I have seen it and I take it. And you get this in its place. The only way we're set free is because it's already in the sight of God. When we realize that and confess it and sit with him in silence and say, God, you already know, 
So let me know too what it is you did for me at the cross. We begin to receive freedom. Today, let's accept his work. Let's accept his cross. Let's begin the journey of being still together. And let's stand and let's sing out to Jesus who did this for us.